I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, they break down what we know so far about the results of the midterm elections. They also talk about trade as a driver of green growth in the context of COP27 in Egypt. The Trade Guys also break down the Mexican proposal on corn and biotechnology. Hey, Trade Guys. Great to see you again. Let's start off this week's episode with the big news of the week, which is the midterm elections. What do you make of the results so far in the trade context? Well, I'm a little confused overall. Here's my confusion. Going into the midterm elections, 75% of voters told pollsters repeatedly that they thought the country was on the wrong track. 75%, which is a relatively high number. And yet, to date, there has been no incumbent governor or incumbent senator who ran for re-election and has lost. Now think about that. How, how do you get a situation where everybody's unhappy and the incumbents all get re-elected? It's it sort of, so now there are three races in the Senate that are yet to be settled, each of which feature an incumbent. So you have uh, Cortez Masto in, in Nevada, Kelly in Arizona, and then uh, Warnock in Georgia is now going to a runoff. So it may happen that one of those incumbents loses their re-election bid, but it just hasn't happened yet. And despite extremely different performances, I look just to take it out of the context of partisanship, Brian Kemp in Georgia was re-elected. Mike DeWine in Ohio was re-elected governor. And they had very different COVID responses. DeWine was extraordinarily unpopular. I had very restrictive measures in place, relatively speaking. Uh, Kemp was popular throughout the, the pandemic and got relatively open policies very quickly. And yet they both were reelected. So I don't know what's going on with the American people. <laughs> Usually when they're unhappy, they throw the bums out. <laughs> this time they were unhappy and they kept them. So No, they never throw very many of the bums out. I mean, the, the reelect rate is usually in the 90s. True. And the old, you know, the old cliche about this is that people hate the Congress, but they love their congressmen. If you look at the election results, most of these men and women come up with 60 plus percent of the vote. There were a number of close races. There always are a number mm -hmm. of close races, but people tend to like the one that represents them, even while they're complaining about the institution as a whole. So I, I guess I'm not surprised at, at the reelect rate. I'm not sure that there's a lot of implications here for trade in terms of, of public opinion. I don't think it was an issue in most races. That's fair. Even in Ohio, where I think it was an issue, the two candidates uh, were not that different on trade. They were different on a lot of other things. But Yeah, the Senate candidates, uh, Ryan and, and uh, Vance, were pretty much aligned on trade, both in sort of Trumpian positions. In the Pennsylvania Senate race, it, it was not a top-line issue between the candidates. The debates were more about other things. So I think the, the I'm not sure that the electorate sent a message about trade. It does raise the question of, you know, what's going to happen. Well, practically, uh, we, we uh, expect the Republican House of Representatives. So we don't know the Senate yet, but a Republican House does make for a change in circumstances on a practical level. My colleagues at Kelly Dry, who are following this 
very, very closely and looking at the latest map from Bloomberg, which has vote tallies and even moment by moment when new votes come in, says that 207 votes, seats have been called for the Republicans. And of the ones that have not been called, they're leading in 13, which would take them to 220. The Democrats actually are leading in like 31. Although there's a number of these, particularly in California, where, you know, not even half the vote has been counted yet. So it's I think too soon to draw a lot of conclusions, but it looks as though the margin will be that, yes, you're right. The Republicans will take the House, but it will be a narrow, a very narrow margin, Right, which means two things. One, more internal fratricide amongst the Republicans. Whoever's in charge, you learn really quickly that the party's not unified. And you've seen, you know, the we, we've seen two years now of, of, you know, the Democratic left and the Democratic center fighting over a wide range of things although they managed to suppress the, the trade schism. But what we're about to see now is the Republican right and the Republican center fighting over things, which we used to see back in the Tea Party mm-hmm. days and back in the, the early Freedom Caucus days. And if you talk to John Boehner or talk to Paul Ryan about the Republican caucus, you can see this is not a unified entity. And we're about to experience that again. On trade, my column this week was just was on the short run. You know, what happens next month? this month and next month. And my answer was not a whole lot. It appears there will be a serious effort to do something on uh, renewing TAA, on renewing GSP, on renewing miscellaneous tariff bills. All those things that were in the CHIPS Act and died in August will be back up. But I think most people are projecting a gridlock. The Democrats' top one of those is renewing trade adjustment assistance. And the Republicans are saying, we won't buy that unless you buy trade promotion authority. And the Democrats point out the administration has not asked for trade promotion authority, that it's expired, and they're not excited about doing it. It would reopen divisions in the Democratic Party over trade if they go down that road. So I'm not optimistic about the near term. Longer term, a lot of people think that Republican leadership, whoever it ends up being on Ways and Means, is going to be pro-trade and will be trying to move TPA and most importantly, trying to move traditional trade agreements. And Scott, is that what you think is going to happen? I think that resonates with Mr. Brady's retirement. He didn't contest the election and he had, I believe, was term limited anyway. So Kevin Brady, whom, whom we love and respect, has left the scene and the new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is one of three people. So we don't know which one, but they'll figure that out. In any case, I do think that all three contenders, Mr. Smith of, uh, of Nebraska, Mr. Smith of Missouri, and uh, Mr. Buchanan of Florida, are all pro-traded in terms of their voting record. And more importantly, I think next year, if you look at the macroeconomic headwinds that the economy is going to face, there's going to be a need for some growth. Look, monetary policy is tightening dramatically. The Fed's raising uh, interest rates and doing some quantitative tightening of its own balance sheet. There's going to be a fiscal drag because you have a lot of supplemental spending, COVID-related supplemental spending in past years that won't be repeated. You have a very strong dollar, which will be tough for exports, and you have policy uncertainty on regulation. So all those things would say you will we'll need something for growth. And I hope trade is part of that, but we remain to be seen what the agenda is. Well, speaking of growth, that is a topic that has come up a bit recently at the COP27 climate conference in Egypt, which is ongoing. That happens to have coincided with the release of a major WTO report that urges countries to lift green trade barriers. So let's talk for a minute about climate and trade nexus. 
Why is trade so important in our efforts to combat climate change? Well, it enables the faster and broader dissemination of new technologies and decarbonizing technologies if we can get over the barriers. I mean, trade, basically, you know, writ large, trade is an accelerator of change. It exposes countries to competition that they don't have internally, and that forces them to step up and become more competitive. Climate is an area where we need new technologies and we need to change things. New, find new ways to reduce our emissions, and a more liberal trading environment will enable the faster and broader flow of technology to everywhere. So it makes sense. There have been, there are barriers. We've talked about some of them before. There has been an effort, uh, the one that we've written about it at CSIS is the effort to zero out tariffs on environmental goods, which would be the kinds of technologies that we're talking about, as well as more mundane things. One of the biggest arguments was about just bicycles as an environmental good. And we can't get across the finish line on the environmental goods agreement. But if we can't make that kind of progress, what we face, I think, is a more protectionist world in which countries start using trade as as a weapon, particularly to prevent imports that might disadvantage their industries. So we head towards CBAMs, carbon border adjustment measures, uh, in which countries are trying to sort of equalize the balance between imports that are greener and cleaner than their own production without giving their companies an incentive to move offshore. And that was kind of mangled. Scott, can you make sense of it? Well, no, actually, I agree with all of what you said. I would say in the long run, trade's very helpful in terms of climate change because it makes all the all economies more efficient. If you dig through the principle of comparative advantage, what you'll find out is the more trade flows you have, the efficient production winds up in, in the hands of efficient producers. And so over time, that that is a net positive for maintaining a certain standard of living in the most efficient way possible. Second, it does clearly transmit ideas. Well, trade's very important for that, and, and we, we do need the ideas. But third, there's a set of rules behind all this that tend to either hinder or help the advancement of climate policies. And this is where I think it would behoove the WTO and other institutions to focus, because we'll spend a lot of time fighting over rules if we don't focus on them up front. And what I have in mind here, for instance, industrial subsidies. We're back to industrial subsidies. Industrial subsidies, trade distorting industrial subsidies are banned by the WTO. And so we probably ought to revisit that. We will want to consider production and process methods for goods. Currently, the standard at the WTO in, in plain English is a widget is a widget is a widget. It doesn't matter how it's made. It's treated the same at the border, treated the same by the trading system. Well, I think we're going to want eventually to favor certain production and process methods over others based on their, their carbon intensity, perhaps, but it's something that, that needs to be teed up and discussed. Bill mentioned the border adjustments. Currently, we adjust some taxes at the border, the value-added tax being the uh, the most frequently adjusted tax. But carbon pricing, to the extent that it enters into goods, will be subject to inquiries about border adjustments. We don't have a system for that now. We don't, and we don't even have a way to count them. One one thing about taxes is it's it's all done in, in money terms. It's fairly easy to count, and we know what the rates are. But we have new problems to solve. To the extent we can come to agreements in advance about how we're going to deal with these changes to the rules or, or modifications of the rules. I think what that does is streamline the members of the WTO as they advance different policy initiatives. So you get into fewer fights, 
you get to the preferred solutions faster. So I think there's a lot of work to do. I'd focus on the rules. One of the things that we've been harping on endlessly at CSIS is that that process begins with agreement on how to measure carbon content. Correct. If you don't agree on how to measure it and how to count it, then you end up with endless discussions of countries accusing each other of protectionism, countries accusing each other of using standards that benefits their industries. So their industries don't have to do anything while the foreigners have to do something. You really, really need common methodologies. And we're not there yet. So we've talked a lot about disagreements over the rules, and this has come up quite often recently in the context of the electric vehicle tax credit. Japan and the European Union and others have sought an agreement with the United States that would give them FTA-like treatment when it comes to the EV tax credit. There's also been quite a bit of discussion in D.C. about this idea that the Treasury Department could grant close allies a waiver when it comes to EVs. Any thoughts on whether or not that's viable? Are the Europeans getting their hopes up? What's going on with the waiver discussion? Well, you know, they can ask. It's all fantasy. They're being clever in the way they frame it because the way the law reads, certain kinds of products and minerals are permitted if they come from a country with whom we have a trade agreement. And so we don't happen to have one with Europe. It's clever of them to say, well, maybe let's just treat us like we did. My sense is the legislation as written does not give the Treasury Department the flexibility to provide that kind of a waiver. That doesn't mean they won't do it because, you know, in the end, the United States, it it all ends up being litigated anyway. So in theory, the Treasury, which has to write the regulations here since it's a tax credit, the Treasury could say, well, we'll just treat imports from Europe as if they were coming from a country with whom we had a trade agreement. I have no doubt that if the government does that, they'll be sued because there are industries out there that want the law to be enforced as it was written and not as it's imagined. And then, you know, we'll see how that were to play out. But The correct answer is that what the Europeans want and what the Japanese and Koreans want really is beyond the capacity of the Treasury Department to to agree to, which is why I think this ends up back in the lap of the Congress to look at it again, because what they've done is create a standard that in the short run cannot be met, particularly the ban on uh, Chinese minerals, which goes in and parts and components, which goes into effect in 2024. I think there's a lot of people in the United States who would say weaning ourselves off of Chinese minerals is good policy. And certainly that's the administration's policy. But you can't find very many people who say that it's possible to do that in the next year and a half. This is going to end up back in Congress's lap asking people to say, you know, let's do something that is not going to slow down the transition to electric, but in fact will speed it up. Well, Congress actually approved the very trade obligations that this uh, provision violates in the long term. I do think Congress will need to solve it. Certainly, they've created a subsidy nobody can claim at the moment for a number of reasons. But in the long run, if you want to keep open markets, if you want to keep the speed and efficiency that is is consistent with uh, having an open market, including getting ideal vehicles for faster, then you want to make sure you're not creating trade controversy in forms that you would not accept from our, our partners. We're asking Europeans to accept some disadvantage here that we would never think of accepting ourselves. So uh, I think Congress is the right place to solve this. And the Europeans are beginning to talk about retaliation. Right. Although in doing so, they've reflected their own internal disagreements. I mean, the French, which is exactly what you would expect from the French, are leading the fight for retaliatory uh, reciprocal statute. Someone in the German government the other day suggested that 
what we really need to do is have negotiations with the Americans on a trade agreement. That raised eyebrows everywhere because the, the European Commission has been very clear that they don't want to do that. And uh, this is shades of TTIP. And the U.S. administration has been very clear that they don't want to do that either. So uh, it's not clear that there's much of a constituency right now on either side of the Atlantic for doing that. But it came up. And of course, the consequence of it coming up then was a number of other countries in your a number of other EU members are starting to tell the French and the Germans, uh, says, don't forget about us. Keep us included in this conversation. The two of you can't just go off and do what you want. So they have to sort out their own reaction first. I mean, the convenient answer here would be if, if the U.S. would be able to come up with a legislative change that would provide more time to comply with the standard while maintaining the standard. That's probably not what the Europeans want, but it would solve the short-term problem. I don't see that happening in 2022. It would be a really amusing irony if it turns out that France begins a controversy on automobiles. Even the mo at the moment, I can't think of a single made-in-France automobile sold in the United States. There are no Renaults anymore? None that are uh, they're sold in the U.S. that did, to my knowledge. In fact, I'm not sure the company exists anymore. It became part of Stellantis, as I recall. Yes, which is now, I think, Belgian-owned. So not, so not even at arm's length. Well, let's turn now um, to another topic, and my sincerest apologies, I don't have a corny joke for this one, but let's talk about the new uh, Mexican policy on biotechnology. Could you explain what's happening? <laughs> well, look, the U.S.-Mexico uh, is a very important trading relationship. They've long been, I, I think, our third largest trading partner, but it's historically sort of a prickly relationship. I would note as a backdrop that Mexico has long had uh, sort of deep state involvement in their economy. And in fact, one of the reasons for the, for the NAFTA being negotiated back in the, in the 19, early 1990s uh, was uh, a group of sort of market-oriented Mexican leaders who wanted to overcome what were acknowledged problems of the heavy state intervention in the Mexican economy. So that's how we got to NAFTA in the first place. That's why we make things together in North America. That's why Mexico is such a large trading partner now. The current government of Mexico has an emphasis on state control again. So there's a number of topics. Only the, mo the most recent is gene-modified or genetically modified corn. You got to look back to the early treatment by the AMLO administration of Pemex, controversy on electric generating plants in the north of Mexico, oil and gas exploration permitting, Recent statements on lithium, whether they want to nationalize lithium and prevent exports. Now we come to corn. So it's a, there's a long series of tensions, most of which surround the degree of autonomy that the Mexican government can exercise. This is a disagreement over technical standards, what are called sanitary and phytosanitary standards. It's not exactly clear what the disagreement is, but there is a, an underlying principle that health and safety standards in food be based on science and specifically also a risk assessment. Most corn, and in fact, almost all corn produced grown in the United States, as with all soybeans, has been gene modified, mostly to improve pesticide utilization and reduce the, the amount of pesticides needed to raise the crops. And these GM corn and GM soybeans have had their controversy in Europe what they don't have is any association with human harm. I mean, you, you look at 
at the hundreds of millions of people who consume this. And in the case of soybeans, it's mostly the hogs that consume the soybeans and then the people who consume the hogs. There is no harm, as best I can tell, in 30 years or so of these products being on the American market, yet they still raise controversy internationally. And so there, there is a dispute about Mexico's ability to exclude genetically modified corn from the exports to Mexico. It would create a lot of shortages in animal feed and in, in probably in human calorie consumption if it were to go forward. But it's a dispute that we need to iron out based on the agreements in hand, both the WTO-SPS agreement and the USMCA or previously NAFTA agreements require science-based risk assessment in safety standards. So I hope we can iron it out. Now, this is a place, interestingly enough, where if you have a Chairman Crapo, Idaho has a lot of agricultural output, say a Chairman Smith of Nebraska, corn's very important, and Secretary Vilsack of USDA could work together at, on, on a standards project that doesn't require TPA, doesn't require a new trade agreement, but would be of great importance to farmers and producers. So it's something to keep an eye on. It may be resolved, but it's one of a series of these with Mexico that there's probably a bigger bigger issue about Mexico's sort of preference for state control, but it's playing out in many, many forms. So that's the best I know at this point. Well, thank you so much. That wraps up this week's episode of The Trade Guys. We will be back next week at the same time and day. So we look forward to touching base then. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.